Hey, everybody, before we get started today, we want to make sure everyone knows about our upcoming live shows. First up, Holly will be at Salt Lake Comic Con September 21st through 23rd. I won't be able to make it to that one, so past guest and friend of the show, Brian Young, will be talking with her about Lon Chaney. Then, on October 6th at 9.30 p.m., we will be appearing as part of New York Comic Con Presents, and we'll be talking about the first comic book. You can find out more information on all of this, ticket links, everything like that, if you go to mistinhistory.com and click the link that says live shows. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. Earlier this year, I went to the World History Association's annual conference here in Boston. It was an awesome time. I also picked up a lot of ideas for potential podcast topics or got my memory jogged about ones I already wanted to do previously. So the conference reminded me that I had wanted to talk about Ibn Battuta. So that's why we finally got our Ibn Battuta episode not long ago. It also planted the seed for this week's episodes, along with, of course, more that will probably come at some point in the future. One of the presentations I saw was about Amin Pasha, whose rescue in the finger quotes, whether it was really a rescue or not, is kind of questionable. His rescue from Uganda by Henry Morton Stanley became this incredibly popular story in the 19th century. Today, people are probably more familiar with Stanley's expedition to find Dr. David Livingston, which is about 15 years earlier. But this meeting between Stanley and Eamon Pasha and just Eamon Pasha himself wound up being the subjects of articles and stories and books and then being on all, like all these consumer products from matches to bullion to chocolate, just the, an array of things got labeled <laughs> and branded Amin Pasha. In addition to all that, though, Amin Pasha's story connects to so many things in history that we have not spent a lot of time on, particularly in the context of both the Ottoman Empire and African history. He's one of those people who kept finding himself in the midst of one huge event after another. So we are going to talk about his story in two parts. And today we've got his early years and his time in Albania and how he made his way to Africa. Uh, taking a new name in the process. And the next time we will get to how he wound up needing or maybe not really needing to be rescued by Henry Stanley. And just as one note before we start, Pasha is an honorific title and it indicated a high rank in the Ottoman Empire's military and political system. And it is the last and uh, highest of several that he actually held during his lifetime. But Amin Pasha is really how everyone knew of him by the end of his life. It's how he's most often cited cited historically. So at some points, we will probably wind up saying Iman Pasha when at that point he had a different title than Pasha. Mehmed Iman Pasha was born Edward Schnitzer on March 28, 1840, in what's now Opola in southwestern Poland. At the time, it was Apeln, Silesia, which was part of the Kingdom of Prussia. His father Ludwig was a merchant, and although the family were German Jews, they were under enormous pressure to assimilate with their Christian neighbors. 
When the young Edward was two, they moved the family to Nysa. Uh, that's near what's now the border between Poland and Germany. And then when he was five, his father died. His mother, Pauline, remarried a Lutheran man. And then after Pauline's marriage, the family officially converted. When Edward was baptized, his name was recorded as Edward Karl Oscar Theodor Schnitzer. He also had a sister named Melanie and several other half-siblings, not quite sure how many. They're not typically named in his biographies. They're just sort of mentioned as existing. <laughs> a group of siblings en masse. Uh, we don't have too much detail about his childhood or his education, but we do know that he eventually studied medicine, zoology, and ornithology at the universities of Breslau, Berlin, and Konigsberg. He did quite well in university, and he was praised as a diligent and industrious student, and he also started publishing his research in journals before he graduated. Although he really loved the comforts of home and he was devoted to his family, he was also more at ease in intellectual pursuits than in social life at school. His family also didn't have a lot of money, and he found that some of his friends did not have quite enough time for him when he was short on funds. So over his university years, he became somewhat isolated. He spent more time with books than he spent with people. And at the same time, he was very careful and particular in his dress and appearance. And when he did have money, that was what he usually spent it on. And that comes up over and over and over in other people's accounts of him throughout his life. I can't judge. I completely understand. Uh, <laughs> Edward earned his MD in 1864, but he had trouble getting certified to actually practice medicine in Prussia. He didn't immediately apply to take the required state examination after he graduated, and once he finally did, he was turned down on a technicality. Too much time had passed since the end of his MD work for him to be eligible to sit for the exam. Biographers have suggested a number of possible reasons for this delay between the end of his MD work and his attempt take, to take this exam. One of them is that even though he was an overall good student, he had been particularly focused on the more practical parts of medical school and on other courses across the sciences. He has interests within the world of science were pretty wide-ranging, and that meant that he was not so focused on the, the particulars that he would need to pass the state exam. Another is that perhaps he'd already started itching to travel, but his family really wasn't in favor of him going away. So being unable to practice medicine at home would have given him a convenient excuse to leave without so much resistance from his mother and sister. Uh, there's also some suggestion that anti-Semitism may have been a factor in his being turned down for the exam, even though he had converted to Christianity as a child. Regardless of whatever the actual reason was, Edward decided to move somewhere that his failure to take this exam would not be an issue. And he had a couple of options that were open to him. One of them was actually to enter the military and to travel to Mexico with Archduke Ferdinand Maximilian, who's covered in our archive in the 2011 episode, Maximilian, Mexico's Habsburg Prince. But in the end, he instead went to Ottoman Turkey with a plan of either entering the service of the Ottoman Empire in some way or finding some kind of other employment as a doctor. He soon settled in the port of Antivari, Albania, which is now Bar, Montenegro, where he became the personal physician to several families living in the area. 
He set himself up with a very tidy and precisely furnished apartment where he described his personal study as, quote, small but the envy of all Antivari. He also had a little garden where he could experiment with agricultural techniques. The position of the port at, in Antivari and the breadth of the Ottoman Empire meant that Amin Pasha, who at this point was still going by Eduard Schnitzer, was surrounded by people who spoke a huge variety of languages. He already spoke French, Italian, and German. And so he got by on other people's knowledge of those languages while he set himself to learning the ones that were spoken more frequently locally, like Greek and Turkish. And because of the wide-ranging backgrounds of the other people he met, he often found himself conversing in four or five languages in a given day. Soon, he started looking for a position that would give him more long-term stability than his private practice allowed. And this was his start in a life of working for the government. And we're going to talk about that more, but first we're going to pause for a little sponsor break. by the name Eduard Schnitzer. Amin Pasha's first government position was as a quarantine officer in Antivari. This job was highly suitable to his temperament. He was a fastidiously clean person. And as quarantine officer, he was in charge of medical and sanitary inspections of vessels that came into the port, along with letters and parcels and other goods that came in from other parts of the world. And then obviously, if someone contracted a contagious illness like cholera, he was the one responsible for making sure they stayed in quarantine to prevent the disease from spreading. He even got approval for funding to build a quarantine house for this purpose. He was also named sanitary officer for the district of Antivari, where he developed regulations to improve public health and sanitation, like how the streets should be cleaned and how deep the ditches should be. Even though he had the backing of the police in enforcing these rules, he found this to be an uphill battle. In his description, quote, the usual Turkish laissez-faire was a bit of an obstacle. So the fact that he was so clean comes up a lot along with his fastidious appearance. Um, the the panel where I learned a little bit about him was about gender, and the portion that discussed Amin Pasha was all about the idea of masculinity and how a lot of people were like, he just doesn't quite fit in with what we expect from a man. <laughs> and part of it was because he is so clean. <laughs> <laughs> So he really liked this work, though, unsurprisingly. Uh, he continued to be the quarantine and sanitary officer, as, along with being the district surgeon until 1870. And his government positions did mean that he had less time for his private practice, and that was work that he missed doing as his government work took up more and more of his time. In 1871, he decided to make another move, and he joined the service of Ismail Haki Pasha, who was governor of northern Albania as a medical officer. And it was around this time that he was granted the title of Effendi. He also adopted a Turkish name, which would morph into Mehmet Amin, which is the name he would end up using for the rest of his life. This name change was at first a largely practical move. As a port, Antivari saw a lot of visitors from all over the world. They had various nationalities and faiths, and although he learned local languages and adopted local dress there, he hadn't really felt the need to change his name or his religion. That was not so true in some other parts of Albania. 
A lot of the places he was traveling with the governor were majority Muslim, and the Ottoman Empire itself had aggressively tried to get the remaining Christian population of Albania to convert to Islam. He thought he could do better work and endure fewer prying questions as Mehmet Amin than as Edward Schnitzer. If he felt upset by this uh, and feeling like he should change his name, he did not let on to any sort of dismay in his letters. At the same time, though, he did take a lot of care to reassure his mother and his sister that his new name didn't mean that he wasn't German or Christian anymore. He wrote to his sister in 1871, telling her not to worry that he had just changed his name, but that he had not, in his own words, become a Mohammedan. The following February, he wrote to his mother about how much he missed his family, and he simultaneously described himself as, quote, completely naturalized and called his Turkish name a disguise. While Amin was working for the governor, an uprising swept through northern Albania. Along with the rest of the Balkans, the Ottoman Empire had ruled Albania for centuries, and those centuries had been marked with ongoing cycles of uprising and revolts. And starting in the 16th century, with the aggressive campaign to convert the Christian population that we mentioned a moment ago. In Albania in particular, the Ottoman Empire's hold had been pretty tenuous. Albania was far enough removed from the rest of the empire that it hadn't really shared all that much of the bounty from the Ottoman Golden Age. And then, even though it was just across the Adriatic Sea from Italy, Turkish rule of Albania meant that it was pretty much excluded from the Renaissance as well. So Albania felt doubly cut off from a lot of the advancements that a lot of its neighbors had been through, as well as being stifled and oppressed by many aspects of Ottoman rule. Into the 19th century, many other Balkan nations, including Greece, Serbia, and Bosnia, went through their own revolutions for independence from the empire. Albania became concerned that it might be annexed by one of its neighbors, replacing Ottoman rule for some other regime. That is all centuries. I mean, I'm not exaggerating centuries of complicated uh, political, religious, and social issues and history boiled down to a couple of sentences. But in short, when Amin joined the governor's service in 1871, Albania was right on the cusp of what's known as the Albanian National Awakening, which is a series of revolts and nationalist uprisings that would ultimately lead to declaring independence in 1912. In other words, when Amin went to work for the governor, his employer was part of the ruling class that was in the process of being overthrown. So when the uprising moved through northern Albania, the governor and his family were forced to flee from it. In the wake of this unrest, Haki Pasha was recalled to Constantinople, dismissed from his post as governor, and banished back to his home of Trebizond on the Black Sea in Turkey. Amin was entrusted with the family's care. He traveled to Constantinople and made arrangements for them to be reunited with the former governor. Not long after he had reunited the governor with his family, Amin's life took kind of an odd turn. His male Haki Pasha was much older than Amin. Amin described him as being like a father figure. And meanwhile, the governor had a much younger wife with their relationship rumored not to be particularly happy. So when Haki Pasha died, his widow, their children, and a number of household servants and slaves were all left in Amin's care. Madame Ismail had been born in Transylvania, which was facing its own unrest, but she spoke French, German, and Italian. Perhaps thinking she might better be able to make a home in Western Europe, 
Amin took her and the rest of the household, which was a total of 11 people, home with him for a visit to his family in Nysa. It would not have been appropriate for the two of them to be traveling together unmarried, so Amin presented her as his wife. But it seems like she was hoping that he would marry her for real. Amin, on the other hand, had thought this was a pragmatic way to get her out of Albania, like out of the Ottoman Empire. Not only did he not want to marry her, he was not really financially able to support such a large household. So, leaving no word of what he was going to do, he cut off his connections with the governor's family, his own family, and everyone he knew in the Balkans, and he left Nysa on September 18th, 1875. He visited some old school friends, and then he vanished. All of this, quite understandably, raised a lot of suspicion and rumors. (laughs) This was compounded by the fact that Amin, who had always been a really regular correspondent with his family, hadn't written to them for at least a year before arriving in Nysa. He didn't write to them again for many years after disappearing. Meanwhile, Haki Pasha's widow and children stayed with Amin's mother for a few weeks before they left Germany as well. There's not really a lot of detail about how exactly all of this drama unfolded or what happened to the governor's family after that. People who had access to Amin Pasha's letters and journals in the decades after his death generally declined to reprint that part, often with kind of a hand-wavy, you don't really need to know about that aside. Yeah, some of it is like, you probably have heard already, so I don't need to put that part in the book. Uh, in my imagination, he was like, man, I don't, I did not mean to get roped up into all this and I'm not sure what to do. So I'm just going to go away. (laughs) Uh, Regardless, though, when he reappeared, it was in Egypt. And we will talk some more about that after another quick sponsor break. for the moment, cut ties with his family and his prior connections in Turkey and Albania, Amin Pasha went to Egypt. He kept working as a doctor and learning even more languages, including Arabic. It also appears that at some point, in spite of his prior assurances to his mother and his sister, he did convert to Islam. For example, his journals of his time in Africa uh, include a whole long exchange with a tribal leader who insisted that he had asked for a Christian to negotiate with. He was disappointed that he had instead been sent Amin, who was a Muslim. I think regardless, I mean, based on what I have read of, of all of his journals and letters and stuff like that, it does not seem like he thought or talked about religion all that much. Uh, So it's all kind of a little cloudy, but (laughs) that seems to be where he ended up. In 1876, Amin went to work for General Charles Gordon, governor of Equatoria in what's now South Sudan. Equatoria is still a region in South Sudan covering the same basic territory, but at the time, it was its own province. Although he was brought on to Gordon's service to be a doctor, Amin's skill with languages, his diplomacy, and his willingness to assimilate with his surroundings meant that he was soon put to work on diplomatic missions. Gordon was expanding the province along the Upper Nile, establishing forts and ousting slave traders from the region. So in addition to his medical work, Amin essentially became an ambassador, learning even more languages, negotiating with local leaders, and undertaking expeditions into neighboring territory. 
In July of 1878, Charles Gordon was promoted to governor general of Egyptian Sudan, and Amin Pasha was named to take his place as the governor of Equatoria. A lot of past episodes on our show that have talked about colonial governments and administrators have generally fallen on this sort of spectrum between blunderingly ham-fisted and flagrantly exploitive and inhumane. But Amin Pasha didn't really fit on that spectrum. In all the accounts that we have, he seemed to approach his work with fairness and compassion. I kind of hate that we have to note that that's an <laughs> exception. <laughs> he was so of, weird because of how thoughtful and level-headed he was. Yeah, I uh, I sent a, a a text to a dear friend of mine who is a world history teacher and said, have you heard about Iman, Iman Pasha? And she said, no. And I said, so he was this guy who worked for the Ottoman Empire. He was the governor of Equatoria. And apparently he was really nice and thoughtful. And she was like, that is bizarre. <laughs> <laughs> So anyway, uh, one of his biggest priorities, which had also been true of Charles Gordon, was to stop the slave trade from operating in the province. So slavery existed in a variety of forms in a lot of Africa long before the transatlantic slave trade was established. But existing forms of slavery in Africa were generally a lot different from chattel slavery as part of the transatlantic trade. His existing forms of enslavement were overall on a much smaller scale. They often, but not always, involved prisoners of war or people who were convicted of crimes. And generally, people were treated more like dependents than property. We are not at all suggesting that it is okay to enslave people, but we just want to make it clear that chattel slavery was much different and in many ways much worse. And the slave trade had huge ramifications all across Africa. Demand for enslaved Africans led to colossal population loss and increased warfare as opposing African nations attempted to capture more prisoners of war to sell. So as a result, about 12 million people from Central and Western Africa were sold into slavery between the 15th and the 19th centuries. To add to all of that, payments in some cases included weapons, which led to an escalating cycle of violence as African nations went to war with their neighbors, using the weapons that they had gotten as payment for the people they had previously sold. These are really just examples. This whole slave trade had tremendous and often devastating effects that reverberated across a lot of the continent, even in areas that weren't directly involved in any of it. By the time Amin came to Equatoria, the transatlantic slave trade had largely been abolished. However, Brazil continued to illicitly import enslaved people from Africa until 1888, even though the practice had been officially banned. Slavery was also still legal and practiced in much of the Ottoman Empire, and people were still being captured in Central Africa and sold through the Trans-Saharan and East African slave trades. So even though it seems like this timeline is a little later than slavery was abolished in a lot of the Americas, there were still a lot of people who were being captured and sold from this part of Africa. So both Gordon and Amin worked to stop slavers from capturing people within the province of Equatoria. And they also worked to free people who had been captured and return them to their families. Their efforts were really successful, They did put an end to the practice within Equatoria, but unfortunately, that just means that slavers instead turned their attention to places outside the province. Like, it wasn't something that they could stop in all of Africa. 
An introduction to an edition of his letters and journals written by Dr. R.W. Felkin summed up his work this way, quote, he had added large districts to his province, not by the use of the sword, but by personal negotiation with native chiefs. To all this must be added the cultivation of cotton, of indigo, of coffee and rice, the establishment of a regular weekly post through his dominions, the rebuilding of nearly all his stations, the construction of better and more permanent roads, the introduction of camels and the transport of goods by oxen, and last but not least, he was able in that year to show a net profit of 8,000 pounds, whereas on his taking up the reins of government, there was a deficit of 32,000 pounds per annum. While our archive is also full of stories of sort of uh, imperial administrators who in one way or another used their positions to increase their personal wealth, Amin Pasha scrupulously documented every gift he received, valued it, and then charged it to his personal account. He was fastidious in every single way. He was so fastidious. (laughs) He's one of those people that I much admire, but I think if he met me, he would just hate me. He also developed the province's military, which was recruited from the local population. In a book called The Truth About Amin Pasha, published in the 19th century, his approach was described this way. Quote, Amin Bey inspected the books at the store depots, had uniforms served out to the troops, and made inquiries as to the state of affairs by asking each one whether he had any reason to be dissatisfied. In this way, he heard complaints and grievances, which he inquired into and redressed when necessary. He reviewed the troops, admonished them to serve the government faithfully and obediently, promoted deserving soldiers so as to encourage them, and so spur the others on to follow their example. In a word, he interested himself with wonderful zeal and fatherly care in the most trifling matters, with the object of fostering content and maintaining order among the troops and the inhabitants. Just in case people were confused, Bey is another one of the titles that he had before he was given the title of Pasha. So, throughout his time as governor of Equatoria, he also continued his work as a naturalist, making extensive studies of Central Africa's flora and fauna, as well as its weather. He made anthropological studies of the peoples living there and documented numerous languages. He sent regular reports of his findings, along with specimens, to European museums and journals. As described in his obituary in the Geographical Journal in 1893, quote, Of the value of his geographical and scientific work, there can be no doubt. Every portion of the wide region entrusted to his care became known to him by personal observation, and his descriptions of the countries through which he passed and the care with which he mapped his routes may serve as patterns to all engaged in the exploration of equatorial Africa. His collections, too, have enriched the museums of England and of his native country, and the esteem in which Amin is held by naturalists is quite as great as that entertained for him by geographers. And according to a letter from German explorer Dr. Wilhelm Juncker, he did it all with, quote, almost punctilious neatness and great care in his dress. While Amin does seem to have approached his work in Equatoria with compassion and thoughtfulness and a lot of dedicated organization and scrupulous note-taking, we don't want to give the impression that he was perfect. Uh, Although he took great care to understand the people and customs around him, he was also definitely influenced by the underlying idea of white supremacy. 
Additionally, the written records we have of his time in Equatoria were all written by people from Europe, not from Africa. So we don't have a lot of firsthand detail about how the people of Sudan felt about all of this. And although it's easy, and for a lot of us even instinctive, to think of things like roads and crops and a cash flow positive administrative state as improvements, these things are not automatically better. <laughs> the, the fact that Amin Pasha himself seems to have been doing a pretty good job, like, doesn't erase the many issues associated with with colonialism and <laughs> giant empires governing people that aren't actually connected to them. Yeah, he was doing a really good job of administering in a place that never asked Europeans to come and administer. Uh, yeah, well, and even though at this point, uh, we're going to get into this more in part two, Sudan was under the administration of Egypt, which is its its near neighbor, but still, like, the, Egypt was a vastly different place from Sudan, and people in Sudan did not feel particularly connected to the government in Egypt, didn't feel particularly represented by the people of Egypt or the people that were allegedly representing their interests in Egypt. Like, it was a whole complicated situation. So, I mean, Pasha seems to have been a pretty stand-up guy. Colonialism, uh, you know, imperial governance of distant places, like, all these things still have problems. Yeah. And Amin Pasha's time as governor of Equatoria actually did not end happily. And that is exactly what we're going to talk about next time uh, when we do part two of this episode. In the meantime, Tracy. Yeah? What you got in the way of listener mail? I have some listener mail that is from Jessica. It is on our episode about Mamie Till Mobley. And we've gotten a lot of really lovely, thoughtful emails about that episode. So thank you to everyone who has written in about it. And Jessica says, Hi, Holly and Tracy, or Tracy and Holly, you choose the order. It's like a choose-your-own-adventure. Anyway, I wanted to write a thank you for your podcast on Mamie Till Mobley. The Emmett Till story is one of my pet subjects that I love to hear about. It sounds strange, I know, but let me explain. I taught junior high English for a good number of years before, quote, retiring to stay home with my son. Thanks to some of my college professors, I had done an emphasis in African-American literature and had spent some time with a professor slash author who wrote both a historical fiction and a nonfiction book about Emmett Till geared toward junior high age readers. As a white girl who grew up in an area of the country that until very recently had little to no diversity, it wasn't until I hit college and took some of these courses that the idea of racism became real to me. It was something I read about in textbooks, but the experiences, fortitude, and trials of those who lived through it were beyond my scope to that point. This is why I loved teaching the Emmett Till story to my junior high kids. Like me, most of them hadn't had much experience with the kinds of tensions and terrors that they read about in their history books. By learning about Emmett, a kid their age, and both seeing and hearing what happened to him, thanks to Mamie's insistence that those pictures be published, I watched the light bulb turn on for many of these kids. Suddenly, racism, bigotry, lynching, discrimination all became real because it happened to someone just like them. As we went through the trial together, some of them nearly sprang from their chairs at the injustices that were being flaunted around that courtroom. Many of them would stay after class to discuss further the now real-for-them details leading up to the civil rights movement. I often taught this in conjunction with discussions in their history classes of Rosa Parks. One of my favorite quotes to tie to the two classes together comes from her. Quote, I thought about Emmett Till and I could not go back. My legs and feet were not hurting. That is a stereotype. I paid the same fare as others and I felt violated. I was not going back. 
At the end of any unit, we always had the discussion that started with the question, now what? Now they had, now that they had read this piece with me and they had learned what they had, what were they going to do about it? The discussion following this unit was always my favorite. I could see the fire in the eyes of these kids who are all now adults, who have the potential to change the world, and I will forever be grateful that I got to see them feel and know that they have the responsibility to change the world for the better. This is why I went into teaching English. My book nerd side was satiated, but I could make what they read real with context and could help them see how the history they had learned could apply to them through the characters we met in our books. Uh, anyway, sorry to ramble, but I was thrilled to see that Mamie was a topic today. As I told the story, as it does every time I hear it, my heart hurt for her and my gut twisted as the events unfolded. I especially appreciated your look at her fortitude and determination, as often the focus is on Emmett, which is not undue, but she was an amazing woman who allowed and pushed for his story to be one that changed the world. Thanks for the wonderful podcast that helps me feel excited and smart as I clean toilets and do laundry and read Curious George for the thousandth time. Uh, and then she goes on to say that after every episode, her son asks um, where she gets her episodes because we always talk about where to get things after the end of every show. Thank you so much, Jessica. I wanted to read this letter for a couple reasons. One, it is such a touching letter. Um, and the other is uh, Rosa Parks' reflection on Emmett Till comes up a lot in uh, discussions of the civil rights movement, and it is not a thing that made it in that particular episode. So I wanted to make sure that we had a chance to bring it up now. So thank you again, Jessica, and thank you also to all the various people who have sent us such wonderful, thoughtful letters about that particular episode. If you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we're at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We're also on Facebook at Facebook.com slash History and on Twitter at History. Our Tumblr and our Pinterest and our Instagram are all also Missed in History. If you come to our website at MissedInHistory.com, you will find show notes for all the episodes Holly and I have ever worked on, a searchable archive of every episode ever, lots of other cool stuff. So you can do all that and a whole lot more at MissedInHistory.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 